enough. Enough of this frivolity. Let me, let me pray, and we'll get started tonight on 1 Samuel. Our Father, thank you. Uh, you love us so deeply, so thoroughly, um, in such an amazing way. Um, thank you for loving us, and we tell you back tonight, we love you. I pray your spirit would be here. Be our teacher, please. Uh, take what is yours, everything that you have caused to be recorded, preserved, protected. Would you take your words and communicate them to our minds and to our spirits tonight um, in a particular way that each of us needs to hear from you tonight on this lesson? Would you do that, please? Uh, we do pray with hope that you'll do that, and we trust you um, however you choose to communicate to us tonight. And so we love you, we pray with hope and trust in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, what are we in? Yeah. Okay, uh, so I'm going to start this way. Um, back in the days of the rocket factory, which was 1986 to 1993 for me, uh, there were, um, I, I worked with a lot of folks, a lot of different people, which was fun. And there was one um, young woman there uh, who, um, and this isn't just characteristic of women, just men too, but she really, really wanted to be married. And she started dating this guy, and there were a couple of us who, who were Christians, and she was a Christian, and so she would come and talk to us about this guy that she had started dating. And we, we said, you know, is he a follower of Christ? Well, I don't know. I said, well, I, I would start there. Well, find that out. Um, and then see how it goes from there. So she came in one day, and she was downcast, and she said, well, I asked him last night when we went out, and he said, no, no. He'd been to church. You know, he wasn't against the whole thing, but was he personally a Christian? No. And she, I mean, courageously, she said, then we're done, and she let it go. Probably a month, maybe six weeks went by, and she came back in one day, and she, I mean, she, she came up to me, and she's so excited, and I thought, okay, this, this looks good, this looks interesting. She said, you know, whatever the fellow's name was, um, I just talked to him again, and oh, he's had this amazing, miraculous conversion. <laughs> and I said, oh, well. You know, tell me about that. And so she told me about that. And she said, so we're back on. Great. Two or three months, he's asking her to marry him. And she's saying yes. So she said yes. And you already know how this story ends, regrettably. Um, two months later, she came in, just downcast, <laughs> and I said, oh, what's going on? And she said, he's not going to church with me anymore. 
Um, he said that he actually doesn't really believe any of this stuff, but he said that to me so I would marry him. <laughs> I said, I'm so sorry. And then I don't know what happened to her after that. But she needs, needed to learn the lesson that we all need um, if we're married. That, um, you know, she, she was, of course, very disappointed, <laughs> devastated. Um, and yet, one of the lessons that she needed to learn, even in that particular season, um, was marriage is not just there to make you happy. It's there to make you holy. And you have to stick, you have to go through the ups and downs and the bumps the best you can. Israel needs to learn that lesson tonight. Not necessarily about marriage, but the idea of God wants to teach us some things, and sometimes he uses ways and means that um, ought not surprise us, but still can surprise us. So we're in 1 Samuel. We're going to talk about the monarchy. It's a time of transition. Right now, in the book of, we've just left the book of Judges, there's no king. There's various judges who rise up. The people want our king, and so that's the book of 1 Samuel, and we're going to talk about Saul. And then there's God's king, and that's David, and he will be the subject of 2 Samuel. So we're in this time of transition from judges to a king, because Israel has their heart set on a king. Oh, look, there it is right there. Israel has her heart set on having a king. She mistakenly believes her oppression is due to no king and no army rather than her own unbelief and disobedience. And so God must correct Israel's thinking and gain her repentance through discipline. big idea for tonight. Many times, the greatest discipline God gives his people is giving them what they ask for. This is true all throughout the Old Testament. It's also true in the New Testament, but it's definitely true right here. The greatest discipline God gives his people is giving them what they ask for. Israel wants a human king. Chapter 8. As Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. Joel and Abijah, his oldest sons, held court in Beersheba. But they were not like their father, for they were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. Whose sons do they sound like? Eli's. 
Finally, all the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, they told him, this this is a great line, you are now old. (laughs) Those are my favorite kind of meetings. Bill, you are now old. You're now old and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for it is me they are rejecting, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they are giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. Now, as early as Genesis 49, we knew that kings would come from the line of Judah. Remember that from Genesis 49? If you weren't here for Genesis, okay. If you were, remember for the final, you're not allowed to forget anything. So Genesis 49 is where we first find out about the kings. We got another little snippet about kings in Deuteronomy. And what was the king supposed to do? Remember, write the copy of the stuff so that he didn't forget the Lord and all those kinds of things. So kings have been anticipated. Now they're going to come to fruition. So, verse 10, Samuel passed on the Lord's warning to the people who are asking him for a king. And then he begins to describe what the king is going to ask and what the king is going to take. Verse 19, but the people refused to listen to Samuel's warning. Even so, we still want a king, they said. We want to be like the nations around us. Our king will judge us and lead us into battle. So Samuel repeated to the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord replied, do as they say and give them a king. Then Samuel agreed and sent the people home. (sighs) What's going on that they're asking for a king? One, we're coming out of the book of Judges which everyone is doing that which is right in his, mind, his own mind. And they, at this time, no king is ruling over Israel. They think that is the answer to everything. They're also fearful of the Ammonites. The Ammonites have been oppressing them. They're envious of other nations. God says they've already rejected him, and now they reject Samuel and his sons. They reject Samuel's counsel, they're stubborn, insistent, fearful, envious, and unteachable. So, God gives them what they ask for. He gives them our king. They've been with no king. Now he gives them, this is our king. And we get, in starting in chapter 9, We get the king Israel wanted. Perhaps not the king. I I do think God gave them this king. But his king is coming in 2 Samuel. His king is David. They're just not willing to wait. 
So he says, tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to teach you a little lesson on the way to David. I'm going to give you your king. I'm going to give you the guy you want. Ready? Here he comes. There was a wealthy, influential man named Kish from the tribe of Benjamin. Oh, wait, that's not Judah. Hmm. He was the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekorath, son of Aphia of the tribe of Benjamin. His son Saul was the most handsome man in Israel. You probably thought that was me. It isn't. I am not Saul. Head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. So what kind of a guy are they picking? I mean, they want a Brad Pitt king. Right? Somebody tall, somebody handsome, somebody wealthy, somebody influential. That's the kind of king we want. As God will remind them later, I don't look on the outside. I look at the heart. You all are looking at the outside. And this is what you want? Name that tune. So one day, God orchestrates some events here. Kish's donkeys uh, are, uh, go away, wander away. And so Saul takes a servant to go look for him. Well, they look everywhere in chapter 9. Verse 6, but the servant said, I've just thought of something. There's a man of God who lives here in this town. So they are by Ramah. This is where Samuel lives. He's held in high honor by all, but they, you don't know it's Samuel yet. Because everything he says comes true. Let's go find him. Perhaps he can tell us which way to go. Well, we don't have anything to offer him, Saul replied. Even our food is gone, and we don't have a thing to give him. And the servant said, well, I've got one little silver coin. Maybe he'll take that. And Saul says, all right, let's go. So they go, and they're told, yes, he's at the city gate. And when Samuel, verse 17, when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said, that's the man I told you about. He will rule my people. And just then Saul approaches Samuel at the gate, and he invites him to this celebration dinner. I mean, imagine if you're Saul. You're like, I'm coming into town to find out about some donkeys. I meet this old guy. He says, come up here. I'm the subject of a banquet. That's kind of weird. <laughs> he spends the night there. He gets up. Samuel chapter 10 takes a flask of oil, pours it over Saul's head. He kisses him and said, I'm doing this because the Lord has appointed you to be the ruler over Israel, his special possession. And then he goes on and tells him some things. Now, all of this is happening, okay, uh, Saul's going to go up here and fight in Jabesh Gilead, but basically everything else happens right around in here. You're within mm, 10 to 12 miles of Jerusalem, kind of just right around there. So if you think if Fort Worth is Jerusalem, you've got, um, you know, like the 820 loop. The kind of everything that's happening is within the 820 loop. It's, it's all really, really, really local. Okay, so Saul, or, or Samuel, sends him on his way. Whoops, what was, it, what was before that? Oh yeah, we did that. 
Okay, so what does God do? He gives them Saul. He was faithful and sensitive to his father. Good. But lacked spiritual sensitivity, not knowing what all Israel knew, that Samuel is just five miles away from them. Saul had no clue that there was this seer, that Samuel was just five miles away. Saul was way more caught up in to appear than he is in to be. To appear rather than to be. So, Samuel anoints him and tells him that he is God's selection. Now, God's appointment says, so he, he's going to give him some um, confirmation. So he's going to give him three signs to encourage him. First, he says, when you leave me today, you will see two men besides Rachel's tomb at Zelzah on the border of Benjamin. They will tell you that the donkeys have been found and that your father has stopped worrying about them and is now worried about you. He is asking, have you seen my son? Okay? When you get to the Oak of Tabor, you will see three men coming toward you who are on their way to worship God at Bethel. One will be bringing three young goats, another will have three loaves of bread, and the third will be carrying a wineskin full of wine. They will greet you and offer you two of the loaves, which you are to accept. When you, arrived at, when you arrive at Gibeah of God, where the garrison of the Philistines is located, you will meet a band of prophets coming down from the place of worship. They will be playing a harp, a tambourine, a flute, and a lyre, and they will be prophesying. At that time, the Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them. You will be changed into a different person. After these signs take place, do what must be done, for God is with you. Then go down to Gilgal ahead of me. I will join you there to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. You must wait for seven days until I arrive and give you further instructions. So God gives him three signs through Samuel. He said, first, God is able to solve your problems. Second, he said, God is able to meet your needs. And third, God is able to, you, to empower you for his service. So these three signs point to something that God is doing, solving your problems, providing your needs, and empowering you for his service. So Saul goes and, and finds these things to be true in 9 through 16, right? He, he gets these things, he prophesies with them, um, which is the origin of a proverb in Israel at that time. Uh, so this is the origin of the saying in verse 12 of chapter 10. Is even Saul a prophet? Something so crazy and outlandish, if, if that happened, you would say, uh, is even Saul a prophet? You, you know, like a proverb today? No, you don't know what a proverb today is? Yeah, okay. So God gives him three signs to encourage him, and he finds that these things come to pass. So 17, verse 17 of chapter 10, Saul is acclaimed 
king. They all meet at Mizpah. Uh, Samuel is going to go through an installation sort of a ceremony. Uh, he brings each family of the tribe of Benjamin before the Lord, and the family of the Matrites was chown, chosen, and finally Saul, son of Kish, was chosen from among them. But when they looked for him, he had disappeared. So they asked the Lord, where is he? And the Lord replied, he's hiding among the baggage. Hey, Israel, here's where your king is. He's hiding in the baggage. Mr. Tall, Dark, Handsome, he's hiding over here. Now, if you're Israel right about now, you'd be going, hmm, what do you mean he's hiding in the baggage? But you're not really putting two and two together, and the Lord is uh, going to teach you a lesson here. So they found him and brought him out, and he stood head and shoulders above anyone else. Then Samuel said to all the people, this is the man the Lord has chosen as your king. No one in Israel is like him. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Uh, then Samuel told the people what the rights and duties of a king were. He wrote them down on a scroll and placed it before the Lord. Then Samuel sent the people home again. Uh, uh, now we, we have this um, interlude about the Ammonites. So the Ammonites have been oppressing Israel. So while all this installation service is happening, meanwhile, the Ammonites are out harassing the Israelites. Now these fellows live on the east side of the Jordan, not on the west side, which is where they're having this installation ceremony. So this is a little further away. Uh, and he, uh, the king, Nahash, is um, merciful and gracious. Uh, instead of killing the Israelite men, he just gouges out their right eye. Uh, uh, what an exchange. What a, what a nice guy. And you say, well, why, why would he gouge out their right eye? Well, because they were right-handed. And if you have your shield, your shield covers your left eye, but it doesn't cover your right eye. So if I gouge out your right eye and you're right-handed, you can still live because you've got one eye, but you can't fight anymore because you, you're not going to, unless you, you know, if you drop your shield, you're going to be dead. So anyway, that's what Nahash is doing. He's, um, he's oppressing the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan. So let's see, where are we? Uh, Eleven. Mm. Okay, so about a month later, King Nahash sends out, uh, sends out his army in the town of Jabesh-Gilead. Okay, so go back. Okay, so Jabesh-Gilead. So he sends, so here's Ammon, here's the Ammonites. So he sends his forces out here, and over here we have Reuben and Manasseh, um, at least half of them, over here populating the east side of the Jordan River. So they're going to meet here at Jabesh-Gilead. Okay. Oh, let's see. Okay. All right, Neha uh, so uh, the citizens of Jabesh asked for peace. Make a treaty with us and we will be your servants, they pleaded. All right, Nahash said, but only on one condition. I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you as a disgrace to all Israel. Oh, give us seven days to send messengers throughout Israel 
uh, if no one comes to save us, we will agree to your terms. So the messengers uh, go out and they find Saul and Saul's plowing a field and the Spirit of God comes on him and, and he mobilizes the men. Um, interesting that in verse 7, 7, and the Lord made the people afraid of Saul's anger. Saul seems to have a little bit of an anger problem. And the Lord has used that to make all the people frightened. And so when Saul mobilized them, he found that there were 300,000 men from Israel and 30,000 men from Judah. So Saul says to the residents of Jabesh-Gilead, here we come. And they come into town, and he divides his, his army into three detachments. He does a surprise attack, um, and he says not even two were left standing together. So then Samuel at the end of 11 comes in and says, end of chapter 11, Samuel said to the people, come, let us all go to Gilgal to renew the kingdom. So they go to Gilgal, and in a solemn ceremony before the Lord, they made Saul king. Then they offered peace offerings to the Lord, and Saul and all the Israelites were filled with joy. So then Samuel says, I've done as you've asked. And he starts asking these questions. Have I ever stolen from you? Have I ever cheated you? Or anything like that? And they go, no, 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 you've never done that. And he, he says, okay, the same guy who never did that to you before and told you things that came true is the same guy who's telling you this next thing. Okay? So this guy who you said never lied, never cheated, never stole from you, and he told you these things, that same guy is me, and I'm going to tell you something. And so now he tells them, uh, basically, that they were wrong. They had sinned in choosing a king. He gets down to verse 14. Now, if you fear and worship the Lord and listen to his voice, and if you do not rebel against the Lord's commands, then both you and your king will show that you recognize the Lord as your God. But if you rebel against the Lord's commands and refuse to listen to him, then his hand will be as heavy upon you as it was upon your ancestors. And so now he says, stay here and see what the Lord is going to do. The Lord sends rain and thunder. Um, and all the people were terrified of the Lord and of Samuel. Pray to the Lord your God for us or we will die, they all said to Samuel. For now we have added to our sins by asking for a king. So don't be afraid, Samuel reassured them. You have certainly done wrong. But make sure now that you worship the Lord with all your heart and don't turn your back on him. And then he goes on, he says, I will never forget to pray for you. Great, a great ending for Samuel. Chapter, uh, oh, let's talk about this for a second. Okay, so Saul had some victories. He has victories over Ammonites. Oh, yeah, 13. So he has wars with, with the Philistines, um, which you know, kind of starts going well, um, but then Saul has stayed at Gilgal while his men are out fighting. He waits seven days. Uh, Samuel didn't come. Saul realized that his troops were rapidly slipping away, so he demanded, bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. Oh, 
Saul, this is not good. You're not from Judah, but neither are you a Levite or um, a priest. What are you doing? But he's panicking, so he's got a scheme going. He says, bring me the burnt offerings. I'm going to do this. I've got to take care of it because if I don't, the whole army is going to leave me. So this is what's going on in Saul's brain. After, just after Samuel has said, trust in the Lord your God with all your heart, you know, just after this part, I mean, he's just gotten warned, and he's, he's, he's freaking out already. Just as Saul was finishing with the burnt offering, <laughs> Samuel shows up. <laughs> Funny Saul. <laughs> what are you doing there? I mean, can you imagine if you're Samuel? This is, here's Saul who's just done the offering like he's a priest. Okay. Uh, Samuel said, what is this you've done? Saul replied, I saw my men scattering from me, and you didn't arrive when you said you would. So who's, who's the victim? Saul. Poor Saul. Saul is the victim here. Samuel has done wrong, according to Saul. That, that's not true, but that's how Saul sees it. Uh, he says, you didn't arrive when you said you would, and the Philistines, I can, you didn't arrive when you said you would. I kind of see Saul. Probably not, but that seems to me what he was doing. Uh, he, he, and the Philistines are at Michmash ready for battle. So I said, the Philistines are ready to march against us at Gilgal, and I haven't even asked for the Lord's help. Well, well <laughs> asking for the Lord's help and sacrificing all these things might be two different things, Saul. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering myself before you came. How foolish, Samuel exclaimed. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom must end. For the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. In fact, he already is living and he exists. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. So, Saul is in deep trouble. Samuel leaves. Saul counts them in. There were only 600 with him. And he doesn't know where... Um, Jonathan and his, um, his armor bearer were. And so he finds in chapter 14, Jonathan has said to his armor bearer, come on, let's go over to the Philistines uh, where they have their outpost. But Jonathan didn't tell his father what he was doing. So meanwhile, Saul and the 600 men are hanging around and they're deciding that they should probably... Um, you know, ask what the Lord is doing, uh, what the Lord wants, and so they bring out the um, uh, the uh, ephod, the priestly vest, and Ahijah was the son of Ichabod's brother Ahitub, son of Phineas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord who had served at Shiloh. So Saul is now going to inquire of the Lord, but Jonathan and his armor bearer have already left, and they're climbing up this cliff, and Jonathan. I love Jonathan. I don't know if you like Jonathan. You, you should like Jonathan. He's an amazing guy. 
these guys are probably between 20 and 25. These are two amazing young men. Okay, so they're climbing up this place, and they say to the Lord, um, if they say to us, stay where you are, or we'll, by the way, they can't see over the cliff yet, right? They're climbing the cliff. They don't know how many people are up there (laughs) once they, you know, finally once they get over the top of the cliff. They don't know how many people are there. What do they know? The Lord will fight for us. So here we go. Okay. If they say to us, stay where you are or we'll kill you, then we will stop and not go up to them. But if they say, come on up and fight, then we will go up. That's some courage right there. (laughs) That will be the Lord's sign that he will help us defeat them. When the Philistines saw them coming, they shouted, look! (laughs) I love this. The Hebrews are crawling out of their holes. Then the men from the outpost shouted to Jonathan, come on up here, we'll teach you a lesson. And so Jonathan says to the armor bearer, come on, the Lord is going to help us defeat them. So they get up there. And they killed some 20 men in all with their, body, with their bodies were scattered about over half an acre. Suddenly, panic broke out in the Philistine army, both in the camp and in the field, including even the outposts and raiding parties. And just then, an earthquake struck, and everyone is terrified. This is amazing. Jonathan and his armor bearer have started this giant battle, and the Lord is fighting And doing all kinds of things, which is cool. Now, Saul's got lookouts. And so he's looking out there and he's like, hey, look at all these guys running around and running away. Let's ask the Lord what's going on. Finally, that takes so long, he's like, come on, let's get out of here. (laughs) So they go and they all enter into this battle. And they fight him and fight him and fight him. And Saul has said, nobody can eat anything until I've had my vengeance on um, the Philistines. And Jonathan doesn't hear that because he left, and so he tastes the little bit of honey, and that turns out to be um, uh, the Lord calls Saul and Jonathan to account for that. And then Saul says, um, you know, Whoever did this is going to die, even if it's my own son, never thinking it's his own son, and it's his own son. And what's Saul going to do now? Kill him. And what happens? The people rescue Jonathan. They're like, what? What are you saying, Saul? This guy and his armor bearer are the ones who have started this whole battle and are rescuing us, and now you want to kill him? This doesn't make any sense to us. So the people rescue uh, Jonathan. Uh, Saul calls the army from chasing the Philistines. The Philistines return home. Now when Saul had secured his grasp on Israel's throne, he fought against his enemies in every direction, against Moab, Ammon, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. And wherever he turned, he was victorious. He performed great deeds and conquered the Amalekites, saving Israel from all those who had plundered them. Uh, Then we get a list of Saul's sons and his lineage. The Israelites fought constantly with the Philistines throughout Saul's lifetime. 
So whenever Saul observed a young man who was brave and strong, he drafted him into his army, just as Samuel told everyone that he would do. Uh, then the Lord says, I want to destroy the Amalekites in 15. We're just going to go over this real fast. Um, so Saul slaughtered the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur. He captured Agag, the Amalekite king, but completely destroyed everyone else. Saul and his men spared Agag's life and kept the best of the sheep, goats, and cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything, in fact, that appealed to them. They destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality. Then the Lord says to Samuel, I'm sorry you ever made Saul king, for he has not been loyal to me and has refused to obey my command. Samuel was so deeply moved when he heard this that he cried out to the Lord all night. Early the next morning, Samuel goes to find Saul. Uh, someone told him, Saul went to the town of Carmel to set up a monument to himself. In just a few chapters, you, you begin to see how God says, you know, I know what you said you wanted. Now you got it. Here's the guy you got, because this is the guy you wanted. Setting up a monument to himself. Then he went on to Gilgal. Samuel finds him. Saul greets him. He says, may the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's command. <laughs> hmm. Well, not really. Then what is all this bleeding of sheep and goats and the lowing of cattle I hear? <laughs> Saul, Samuel demanded. Uh, it's true that the army spared the best of the sheep, goats, and cattle, Saul admitted. Uh, but they're going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. We've destroyed everything else. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. Listen to what the Lord told me last night. What did he tell you, Saul asked. And Samuel told him, although you may think little of yourself, are you not the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord has anointed you king of Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and told you, go and completely destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, until they are all dead. Why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Saul insisted. I carried out the mission he gave me. I brought back King Agag, but I destroyed everyone else. Then my troops brought in the best of the sheep, goats, cattle, and plunder to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. But Samuel replied, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice. And submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft and stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul admitted to Samuel, yes, I have sinned. I have disobeyed your instructions and the Lord's command for I was afraid of the people and did what they demanded. But now, please forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel replied, I will not go back with you. Since you have rejected the Lord's command, he has rejected you as king of Israel. As Samuel turned to go, 
Saul tried to hold him back and tore the hem of his robe. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to someone else, one who is better than you. And he who is the glory of Israel will not lie, nor will he change his mind, for he is not human that he should change his mind. Then Saul pleaded again, I know I've sinned, but please at least honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel by coming back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel finally agreed and went back with him. And Saul worshiped the Lord. Before they head out, Samuel kills King Agag. Samuel goes home to Ramah. Saul returns to Gibeah of Saul. Samuel never went to meet with Saul again, but he mourned constantly for him. And the Lord was sorry he had ever made Saul king of Israel. The first chapters in the life of Saul. Saul had some victories over the Ammonites and over others. Samuel gives this farewell address, and he tells them at the very end of it that obedience is going to determine your blessing, and disobedience is going to bring discipline on you. In fact, Saul is discipline on you. You don't obey, you're going to be disciplined. This is how God is going to carry out his word, his law against you. So Saul won some battles, but he lost the war. Jonathan had some great, uh, at least one great victory here. Saul again fails with the Philistines and the Amalekites, the Philistines by not mobilizing himself quickly enough. And then he's going to kill Jonathan because he tasted honey on the end of his staff. He didn't do what he was supposed to do against the Amalekites. And the lesson that we're supposed to learn, the lesson Israel is supposed to learn right at this point, is God honors great faith, not great pretense. He honors great faith, like Jonathan, not great pretense. So as opposed to Saul in this little narrative portion, as opposed to Saul, we have Jonathan showing us what it's supposed to look like. This is the kind of person God honors. Here's the kind of person, this pretender, is not the kind of person God honors. Saul doesn't have the depth of spiritual character to walk with God in obedient faith. He's the leader they deserved, not the one they needed. The truth is Israel got what they asked for. Saul wasn't a man after God's heart. He was a prideful man. A disobedient man who walked more by sight than by faith. A man with a rash tongue. A man striving to make a name for himself. He was a dishonest man. He was a people-pleasing man. A man who cares more about looking right before men than being right before God. A king who will pursue murder in order to hold his throne and his power, and a king who will eventually even seek out a witch desperate to hear from God once more. Israel got what they asked for, a king 
who projected more competence for leadership than his character could deliver. A king who'd use others to build up his own authority rather than using his authority to build up others. A king who would add to Israel's oppression from without by oppression from within rather than giving her rest. Israel got what they asked for. Many times, the greatest discipline God gives us is giving us what we ask for. This is what I call the Burger King principle. Have it your way. Right? That's Burger King's slogan. Have it your way. God says, do you understand what you're asking for? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I do, I do, I do. He goes, okay, have it your way. Let me know how that works out for you. Sometimes he does that. Many times the greatest discipline God gives us is giving us what we ask for. What are you asking God for? What's your heart set on these days? Is there stubbornness or insistence about it? Is there fear from what you see around you? Is there envy over what you don't have? Are you no longer receptive to those you should be hearing from? Are you acting with spiritual pretense? If so, then God may give you what you ask for. So what is the point of God's discipline? The reason God disciplines us isn't to destroy us. It's to grow us up. Part of the point of God's discipline is to get us to repent, to turn the other way, turn 180 degrees. I'm going in this direction. He wants me to go in this direction. So it's to get me to change the direction I'm moving. He wants to increase my dependence and trust on him. What's the fourth fruit of the Spirit, the one you never pray for? Love, joy, peace. Patience. If patience is a fruit of the Spirit, can it be wrong to pray for? Let's agree. The answer is no. Why, do we, why are we afraid to pray for patience? Because we might not get what we want as fast as we want to get it. That's why I don't want patience. Because I know what I want, and I want it now. I talked to a guy this morning, and he said... He said, you know, you're a little older than I am. Have you discovered that, um, that there are some adults who are just like middle schoolers that have kind of grown up, but you still have to sort of parent them? I said, uh-huh. I've discovered that. <laughs> Tell a middle schooler, you know, I want it, and I want it now. And you go, well, that's a little kid. Hey, it keeps going. Patience. What is the point of God's discipline? To teach us patience. 
It's also to teach us worship. Trusting, following, praising, and proving. I don't mean that we're necessarily proving, but the proving comes with saying, Lord, you are right about this. So proving his goodness in your own experience. The point of God's discipline, ultimately to seek and desire his will for my life more than I desire my own will for my life. The point of God's discipline. We talked about it in Hebrews, but remember, God has, I think Warren Wiersbe said this, there are two kinds of discipline from God. There's a correcting discipline, right? We're moving in the wrong direction, and God is going to correct me. But there's also a perfecting discipline discipline. I haven't done anything wrong, but I'm not yet all I could be like Jesus. And so God uses perfecting discipline in my life. So not all discipline means I'm doing something wrong. You say, well, how do you get there? Do you not remember that the Lord Jesus learned by discipline how to be perfect? Now, what does that mean? (laughs) Was the Lord Jesus ever in sin? No. So he never needed correcting discipline. How did he need perfecting discipline? I don't really know. But that's what it says. If the Lord Jesus needed it, guess what I need? And need a lot of. Not only correcting discipline, but perfecting discipline. Sometimes when you're disciplined, you think, oh gosh, what did I do? I know you. I know you. I know what you think. What did I do? Maybe the answer was you didn't do anything. God just knows you're not yet all you could be like Jesus. And so he says, I'm going to bring in some perfecting discipline into your life. Ultimately, all of these things are to help us seek and desire God's will for our lives more than we desire our own wills for our lives. Remember the story of Chuck Colson? Remember Chuck Colson back in the Watergate days, Nixon, all that stuff? Chuck, you know, Chuck Colson goes to prison. Somebody asked him about, you know, um, how did it feel, you know, rising to the top, you know, the most powerful government of the most powerful nation on the face of the earth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And Chuck Colson says, yeah, you know, um, I climbed to the top of the ladder. And when I got to the top of the ladder, I found out my ladder was leaning against the wrong building. (laughs) That's correcting and perfecting discipline. The ladder, (laughs) if we're climbing a ladder, we want to make sure it's leaned against the correct building. It's the one God's will building, not my will building. Request God will grant. That's what I want to know. What kind of request will God grant? Because I'm not sure I want to ask him for the wrong thing. But remember what I said in the very beginning. We're going to pray with hope and trust. We're going to pray with hope. I can pray in hope that a something will change. I can pray in hope for that. As long as then I trust God with the outcome. Here are some requests that I know God will grant. Colossians 3. If you have your Bible, turn to Colossians 3. 
Here's some things that God will answer. This is what Paul writes, Colossians 3, first four verses. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. What things can you pray for? Pray that the realities of heaven, which we know very little about, but pray the realities of heaven will be more attractive to you than the things of earth. Remember the hymn? The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Pray that the things of heaven would take a hold of your spirit, your soul, and become more important to you than the things of earth. That's one thing you could pray for. Here's another one from the Old Testament. Psalm, just turn a little bit to the right if you're back in 1 Samuel. Psalm 119, a great psalm. Psalm 119, and we'll look at the strophe beginning in verse 33. Here's some things to pray for. The author says, Teach me your decrees, O Lord. I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding, and I will obey your instructions. I will put them into practice with all my heart. Make me walk along the path of your commands, for that is where my happiness is found. Give me an eagerness for your laws rather than a love for money. Turn my eyes from worthless things and give me life through your word. Reassure me of your promise made to those who fear you. Help me abandon my shameful ways, for your regulations are good. I long to obey your commandments. Renew my life with your goodness. Great things that you can pray for out of that, uh, out of that whole psalm, but this little section. There's true fulfillment and happiness. You can pray for that, verses 33 to 35. Worthy goals, verses 36 and 37. Reassurance, verse 38. Holiness, verse 39. Renewal. Verse 40, great things that you can pray for that God will say yes to. And of course, John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, to know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. You want to know what eternal life is? To know God and to know his son. That's what eternal life is, to know and be more like Jesus he will answer that prayer, yes. Lord, I want to be more like Jesus. I hear that prayer, and I'm at work on that right now. I will answer yes to that prayer. For next week, read 1 Samuel 16 and 17. Don't put it off till the end. I know it's tempting. Only two chapters. Don't put it off. Read it a couple of times. Great set of chapters. We'll have lots to talk about next week. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for positive examples. Thank you for uh, not so positive examples. Uh, help us to learn 
uh, from both sets of examples. We love you. We want to be found in Jesus, thinking about him, thinking about the things of heaven, not caught up with all these things on earth. But thank you for hearing us when we do bring our circumstances and our situations to you. Uh, I know my brothers and sisters are with me. We pray for them, but we're holding them with an open hand. Uh, do as you choose, please. Um, please don't give us <laughs> um, what we don't want. Uh, give us the things of heaven and give us the things of Christ and give us him. That's what we want. Would you do that, please, in all of us this week? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. See you in a week.